Welcome to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 33, Church and State. Suggestions of what we should talk about. Mr. Halliday, last week you said um, you referred to somebody who informed you that he was the same for 20 years. Rather, he was the same when he spoke to you as regards behaviour and deportment and outlook as he had been 20 years before, but he no longer identified with his behaviour. Mm-hmm. Does this mean that he had attained some degree of self reflective consciousness? And if self-consciousness is a catalyst, wouldn't it indeed have all this behaviour if that statement of his was correct? Yeah. <coughs> well, that's a rich we could say, I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> now, actually, it would be a good idea to look at that and see whether he has got a benefit, even if he should spend the rest of his life unable to alter his behaviour. Touches very deeply on the roots of Christianity and what it is, as opposed to some versions of Christianity. When we consider the material world, we are considering force locked up and rotating. You know that any atom is a system of rotating forces. Now, if we consider these rotating forces to be in a state of privation, that is to say, less than they might be, then we are faced with a similar situation to the one treated of as the fall. Imagine infinite power, that is non-circumscribed power, and then imagine that within this non-circumscribed there appears a circumscription. The moment that circumscription appears, we have a finite situation with a definite amount of force locked up in it. Now, I've mentioned before an experiment which is done by wicked Canis scientists where they cut out of a jellyfish a block of tissue which is alive. And that tissue is made of cells. And an electrode is just tapped on it, and immediately there is a reaction from the cells. They receive the shock, and the ripple starts travelling around, and goes around this ring of tissue, and when it comes back to the initial point of stimulation, the returning motion re-stimulates itself, and the result is the ripple goes around again. Now, when this circle of living tissue was put in the appropriate conditions. Once the initial stimulus was in being, it re-stimulated itself when it came to the point of initial stimulation, and thus this piece of jellyfish tissue became a self-stimulating system. Now, for experimental reasons and for certain symbolic reasons, it was kept going for 11 hours before they bothered to stop it. If they had supplied it with the necessary food, 
in the appropriate conditions, it would have gone on with this ripple running around it continuously. Now, we know that if we can carry away the toxins generated as the byproducts of action within a system, an organic system, if we can carry away the toxins and keep that organism in the appropriate environment, it is immortal. Protoplasm, the, the ground substance of organic life, is immortal if we carry away the toxins generated in action. This means to say that if we get a piece of tissue like the jellyfish tissue, put it in the appropriate fluid, stimulate it, and then arrange for the fluid continuously to have itself cleaned so that all the toxins, products of action and reactions, are taken away, then this thing will eternally go round and will stimulate itself forever. We can easily conceive that this could be done because we could uh, get a multi-millionaire to leave a lot of money with compound interest to arrange for the rechanging of the fluid in perpetuity. Now, when we consider it, we see that if there is an awareness in those cells, and we know in fact that there is a toxic response and a pressure pain behaviour within it, if we condemn it to this cycle of self-stimulation and arrange for its eternal protection so that it cannot disintegrate, in effect it is eternally locked up in itself. Now, constant stimulation is equivalent in consciousness to no stimulation. That is to say, if you subject your organism to continuous stimulation of the uniform order, you will become unaware that you're being stimulated. In fact, we live inside a lot of stimuli now, which are acting on our five senses, and which we cannot sense simply because we've always been subject to those stimuli. We live inside a field of forces which are stimulating our organisms in a sufficiently uniform manner for us to be unaware that those forces exist. In order to become unaware of them, we have been subjected to uniform stimulation for a long time. To become aware of them, we must interrupt the uniform nature of it. We must find a method of breaking this cycle of self-stimulation. Now, the particular man I mentioned had for 20 years had a system running through his organism, a system of nervous impulses, committing him to a cycle of behavior. If we draw this gentleman, he looks a bit like this. If we draw this gentleman in his three parts roughly, the sort of reflex established, a message in the eye, a symbolic form, and this is done in the back, reproduced, and gone up here, <coughs> back here, down the spine, and then marching towards the object. Now, in fact, this was a closed ring of nerve impulses. He saw no possibility for himself of breaking that within himself. But, 
from conversations we had a long time ago about non-identification, he had seen the possibility of escape whilst at the same time being in jail. He now has a concept in here, and it's formulated in the right place, slightly above and between there and there. And this concept is that he, the self, the observer, is not this cycle. So that although he hasn't yet made a link from this concept to interfere with the impulse of going down, he now has a concept inside himself that says he is not that mechanism. It may be that in another 20 years, or a thousand years, he might have built up sufficient impulses to stop that leakage. He's certainly taken the first step towards it because he now can watch a process and be aware of it and see the mechanical nature of it and the fruitlessness of it without being perturbed by it because he knows it is a mechanical process. Supposing we now go back to the generation of the material world. All the Christian variations of religion concur, more or less, in the doctrine of the fall. And by this fall is meant that infinite energy created a large sphere. And within this sphere, traditionally one-third of the spiritual substance of it was precipitated into a closed system, finite. And this third was packed so very, very tightly that it became opaque to motions from outside of the universal order. It could not become opaque to motions of the spiritual order, the other ones, because they correspond with the white paper motions themselves. Now, if we take the concept of the Luciferan Fall, the figure of Lucifer is represented as a son of God and God's favourite son. He's the bright morning star. Morning doesn't mean that, that part of the terrestrial day. It actually means when the substance, that's the Hindu Prakriti, when that substantial zone first differentiated and began to move, that was more. This is substance, zone, differentiating motion. So the morning is that period in which the primary substance precipitated in infinity within a given zone differentiates and these differentiated motions then continue themselves. We imagine that a large plate is closed because we have to close the mouth to pronounce the letter M. If we say M, the mouth is closed and therefore it signifies a closed zone. Within that closed zone, which is the substance of the body of God, the substance of the body of God, that isn't the same as the body of God, the substance of the body of God, is a certain aspect of God as spatial occupier, considered as inertic, closed, 
Remember, inertia means in work at the moon. When you hum with your lips closed and make mmm, then you are affirming work in the closed zone. And this closure constitutes with the motion locked up in it substance. If I now write M inside this original circumscribed zone, and you can imagine I keep writing it until it's quite black, then that is the substance of the luciferum body. It is substantial because it is sub, some being standing on it here and considering it below his feet. All the energy locked up, circumscribed and working within itself is mass inertia. Now, in the very, very same way as the jellyfish ripples carried on, so in that same way, the energy precipitated in that way carries on rotating. Now, if it weren't for energies outside that system hitting it, that is, extra gross material radiations, cosmic radiations, solar radiations, and so on, if they weren't hitting into it and separating it, then it would remain continuously locked. So we know that the electrons spinning around the nucleus in an atom, if it weren't for forces disequilibrating it, coming from outside, all those attendant electrons would be committed to an eternally held-in rotation. Now, held means the held-in. And notice here, we've been asked this before, why then do the Germans say hell means right? If you ask in Germany for an hellish beer, you're asking for a light beer. And this hell means light in, in weight and light as easy and light as illumination. The Germans are very, very fond of substance and the problems raised by it. They are Bauch men. We have to change this man and give him a little bit of Bauch. Strain him up a bit. Straighten the back of the neck. He's now become a Bauch man. The Bauch is this part of the body. The part where you put your substance. He's very fond of that and he feels within it that when he has eaten something, there comes up from it light. So for him, hell is a place of the generation of light. But the light so generated is individuated. The light of the white paper, which is absolute, is not individuated and is called equable light. That is the light that never was on sea or land. But the light that is within the circumscription is darkened by the mass inertia right up to the time that through acceleration of the motions within it, it incandesces and impresses out again. It's been birthed in the sand of the planet Mars. Now, the infinite produced the macrocosmic logos because it said that it loved the world. World means power, ordered. 
which is the same as the word with L in it, the principle of order here, plus L, constitutes word. Power going along, zone differentiating, tying the differentiations together, and the limiting factor. So a world is a zone made of power, which is the same as the glyph M, only inverted, the inertia is overcome, differentiated within it, all the differentiated elements tied together, and the D is the limiting factor, which stops it slipping into infinity. When that cosmos, which also means order or beauty, came to be, that one was called only begotten, that's monogene, it's the one generated, because it had not in it, on its first production, any inertia sufficient to disagree with its generating energy. So that the father, the ad in absolute, produces for himself a soul, which is the son, and then forms the ute, or power, within it. That's father, soul, ute, power we go. Now, this macrocosmic logos, this solute, obeys perfectly the ad, or generating force of the father. But although it does so, within it there are, I'm going to try a second, there are beings finited by the rippling processes in the logos, so that there come to be zones of differentiating activity. This arises spontaneously because there is a virtue, a power, in keeping your ideas and your feelings and your will separate in consciousness. To have a clear idea and a free power to apply to it and a feeling to balance the idea and the amount of power or will you put into it. This trisection occurs. But the essence of the idea is formal compaction. So there is a zone, a form, ruled by Saturn. And if we remove the Saturnine impression, we remove all existence whatever and revert back to the infinite, which is completely valuable. When this zone of formal stress is brought to be according to the will of the Father, then we have a zone with a tendency to compact. Now this tendency to compact is a will to compaction initiated by the Father in the first instance, but each form within it, because it, it draws immediately from the Father, that is the white paper, where it is, the kingdom of heaven and the Father's will are within it. And it is a free will. When it calls that energy, it can call it to do anything whatever. Because that white paper in there cannot be constrained by the white paper outside. So it is identical with the will, the free will of the finite being. And as that finite being 
and all other finite beings in the idea zone were created with a stress on form, then they were tending to formulate. And that tendency to formulate, if not watched very, very carefully, could have resulted in overformulation. And at the same time, because there was a wheel inside the wheel there, the metal was free, although not different from the non-dual absolute, any one of those ideas could initiate a superstress on itself. Now, within this field, all the ideas were subordinate to a master idea, and the master idea was called Lucifer, that is light, and fair is both fire and the root to bear, light bearer. And you notice in the floor de lis, which has to do with the word louse, and a certain little insect that loops about to communicate from person to person, and gives rise to a proverb that are none so pure as the purified. This Luciferan figure is a bearer of the light because it is the master concept of condensation, concentration, compaction. So all the derivative ideas from the Saturnine idea take their orders initially from this master concept of concentration, which is also the ground of prodigality later. Now, the other zones were not committed to formulations so clearly. One was committed to feelings and felt very, very sensitively, whether a thing might become unpleasant. And automatically, from its initial stimulus from the absolute, let go as soon as the thing started to become painful in the formulation. So we have here a hedonistic third that does not, from its own creative tendencies, tend to move towards the painful situation. We also have another side that has no idea in it and is not concerned with pleasure pain at all, but just with pushing. Remember we've got these three things in ourselves and the macrocosmos has these three functions within itself and we're in correspondence with it. So we have a blind push that doesn't want the idea, that doesn't want the pleasure determination, but just pushes very, very hard. Now this hard push is quite friendly disposed towards the Saturnine compression because you can't compress unless you exercise your will. So there's a natural affinity between a hard thinker and a man of draft. But the hedonist side, the pleasure-pursuing feeling being, haven't got a great affinity for life. And consequently they tended to remain vague. Now, the master concept of contraction, condensation, etc., the Saturnine concept, did not like, remember like means the same thing as assimilate, assimilation possibility, this vagueness of the feeling. And he saw quite clearly that any being on the borderline 
of the idea and feeling zones would tend to be influenced by the feeling and the idea would tend to be vague or pleasure determined. That is, only those ideas that were pleasant would be allowed in. So this master concept here, and here we are in agreement with tradition about it, initiated a movement to increase the contraction. In other words, to condense the form so very, very hard that nobody could possibly say that they could remain free from it. He was determined to precipitate the whole lot into formal awareness of what was going on. Now, all the feeling beings who are hedonists didn't like this sort of thing, and so they made various pleasurable statements about it and moved away from it. This centre then precipitated itself very, very hard onto itself, and the result was a complete closure of the energy of that concept, and it drew into itself certain perimeter watchers from round about. That precipitation was the generation of the gross material world. The stuff that we can knock on now is the very being of that original Luciferan lot who precipitated themselves and became the gross material world. Now, Simply because they precipitated themselves into a closed system, they became inert from the point of view of anybody outside their system and unable to penetrate it. If we look at an atom with a nucleus, which is like a throne spirit in the tradition, with attendant electrons going around it at various angles of orbit, if we got inside that system, we would find it very, very busy indeed. And when we are bombarding atoms to make big bangs, we actually penetrate inside and find that the atom is a highly busy complex of forces. But from the point of view of being outside of low energy level, looking at it, it doesn't appear like a system of forces, highly dynamic. It appears like what he calls a static or inert mass. By inert, he thinks he means static, but he's really meaning, because he cannot avoid it, inert or in-working energies are mass. He has the power to penetrate through them, so he doesn't know that there are forces working inside. Now, the forces working inside that atom are the interatomic forces, which are really Luciferan forces. And when two atoms are brought together by external field changes, then some attendant bodies tend to jump from one place to the other. Strangely enough, scientifically, they may be in orbit A one minute, in orbit B the next minute, but they're never in between. But when they do make the jump, it causes a change qualitatively in the two atoms jumping of one electron from one to the other, takes one away and adds one to the other, produces a quantitative and therefore a qualitative change in the two. When we produce a relation between lots of atoms, these things start jumping about, 
and they establish various links. And from these linkages emerges gradually the compounds that we call organic compounds which lead to the growth ultimately of beings able to reflect on their own origin. That is human beings. Now, if we remember that the white paper represents the spirit, and if we say that spirit, being absolute, considered in itself, is simply the white paper, it's a pure act of being white paper, without the KT net, pure R or other, then we say immediately there is no value whatever in it. Value presupposes differentiation of the bee. That little plant that's always mixed with bee produces values by differentiating, by multiplication. The absolute as such cannot multiply itself. There cannot be more than one of them. So multiplication occurs inside it by precipitation. Now precipitation tells you that uh, it is a rationalist pilar mode of cutting off and positing himself, himself. To precipitate is really to first rotate and thus to cut off and then to fix the beam. So the precipitation within the infinite of the finite is a mode whereby the infinite, instead of remain, remaining equable and therefore in a state of perfect equilibrium, and therefore valueless, by precipitating the finite, filling it full of mass inertia, and then working through it, gains in the act of working through it the opportunity for coming up against a resistance. This resistance is the cause of the value. The equable infinite spirit precipitates and enters into the mass inertia system that it precipitates. And as it is driving itself in, it is sharpening itself in overcoming a resistance. And when it finally comes out, it has gained a sharpness which has individuated itself. And as many such rotating systems of mass inertia as it can produce can become individuated, sharpened lights. Now we see here the ground of all great religions. There are, in the world, people who assure us that mass inertia, opacity and solidity, is all there is. The Marxists, who say there's just a lot of particles banging about, and you should never look away from the particles because that is all there is, any material particles. So there are people who require us to look at matter. That is the whole of materialism in one simple glimpse. Those who require us to look at matter. Now if we accept it, and we say, here is a man looking at matter, and it's short in the nose. That means he's not very sensitive. Uh, when he looks at matter in that way, his attention, his consciousness, is projected 
away from his own center. Now, we said before that when the spirit is going in, he can't go to the dense center because spirit is essentially dynamic, and therefore in its middle there is a hole, a hollow. And there is no action in that hole, but all the action takes place around it. But inside that hole is imminent spirit. And beyond it is transcendent spirit. But also beyond this, beyond this physical body, there is the material world. If he accepts the command to look into the material world, as Leibniz would have said, the best of all possible worlds, then straight away he places himself under the dominion of matter. He cannot, while he is looking out to the material world, and being acted upon by that material stimulus and conditioned by it into collecting it, he cannot, while he is being conditioned in that way, <coughs> simultaneously do what eminent spirit says he ought to do. Now, the opposite to this matter-orientated consciousness is spirit-orientated. And you can see how it arose popularly on an earth, the people standing up here, that God was somewhere in the sky. Simply because they knew that matter, they didn't know about the hole in the middle, that matter was inert and certainly was not their friend. Matter was unsympathetic. Matter, when you fall on it, tends to bruise you. And therefore, antimatter, which has crept into science recently, uh, was named here as spirit. Now, the spirit-orientated man, who thought that spirit was somewhere in the sky, became a sky worshipper. And the name for the sky this Gauss, which is the, that's the Sanskrit of it, that's the Greek, the Zeus, and this becomes the view in Jupiter, so Gauss Peters there, and Jupiter here, and Zeus Pater here. These three are all the same, and they mean, factually, the light that is up there, the infinite light. People knew, by the way, things fall to the ground, that they were not empirically able to get themselves up. But they also knew that at a certain time when the sun god here popped into a certain sign in the sky and became marked, that forces would start bouncing out of the earth and pointing at the sun. Vegetable forces. Vegetable, we call the word meaning growing. Now, the first people who saw this thought that this free spirit up here was much more valuable to them than the earth spirit down below because the sun manifestly caused growth, life to spring from the earth and the earth of itself could not do it. But some other more sensitive men thinking more carefully, could see that throughout space, any point of space could become a sun, 
because the sun was only a precipitate body which had incandesced. And therefore they saw no reason why the same conditions should not appear on earth. And when they saw the essential nature of motion, which is not static, they saw that in order to rotate to become a sun, it must lock up a little hole inside itself, which would be free. So they then postulated that inside the earth, deep down below, there was a free place. And this free place was the residence of the imminent spirit. Now we find the first people to say this, the prophets, who insist that there is in man and in transcendence the same principle, spirit. These prophets are very quickly murdered and put to death by those who wish man to orientate towards matter. We'll just have a look at the two and see the relation between these two people rather carefully. The prophet is a man who is talking about prophecy. It's not just a meaningless fun. When Christ says, what shall it profit you if you gain that piece of black stuff that you stand on and lose in the process your own principle of self-determination for soul, If, in fact, in collecting the matter, you become identified with it and go under the law of matter and forget that you are a being of free initiative power, then there is no profit to you. And the men called prophets were men who were pointing out this higher profit more than the material profit. And there is a profit motive in everything man does. And necessarily so. The thing is to get the best profit rather than the worst. When we now consider the man of matter and work out his logic, a man who believes in materialism, really believes in it, is called a fool of the negative order. Because the fact that he exists and walks about on the earth evidences inside himself a force of antimatter that can mobilize his material body. So if a man walking about on the earth really believes that his body is matter, he is a fool of the negative order, because he is incapable of seeing the fact that if there were merely matter and not something antimatter there, he could not stand up and walk about, because he is a material body. Now there are such beings who exist and they make very good converts to certain political systems. But there are also other people who do not believe that, never have believed it, but find it very, very convenient to persuade other people to believe it. If we can persuade a man to bow down to the earth and say, I am earth and nothing else, he will, by identification with the earth, be completely circumscribed by the fact of the earth. He cannot make an invention, because invent means let spirit blow in. He must be completely circumscribed by the rotation and the cycle of events that occur on the earth that he worships. Now this worshipping of the earth we will call the M 
an Indian. We know at least one large religion, which is an M religion. And we know that the fact that it is an M religion shows that alien elements have got into it, because the religion of Christ is not an M religion at all. The M is the inertia religion, the religion of mass inertia and the inertia of mothers. Now, I'm aware that there may be some potential or actual mothers in the audience, so we'll have to remind ourselves that uh, every human being is hermaphroditic and therefore has an M in it and an H function, which symbolizes the initiating force <coughs> that moves something. You know that you've got a certain amount of M in you because you have mass inertia that enables you to stay on the chair without special effort when you sit down. It's getting up that requires the effort. This mass inertia is the M in you, but to worship inertia is the same thing as worshiping death. Now, some men have a natural impulse in them which makes them want to wear crowns. And with the aid of large sticks called scepters and so on, they tap men who are not very strong and cause them to become uh, M worshippers or Mariolaters. When this happens, force from above put into his inert body. If he does get that force put into him in the appropriate amount, if you put him on the right diet, he will become insubordinate to kings. You can do this on people with a short-term injection. You can produce insubordination in anybody in a very short space of time with an injection of the appropriate drug. Now, these kings believe that there is imminent spirit. And they like to believe in it for themselves, but they don't like other people to believe in it, because one of the things they do like is ordering people about. And you can't order people about if they are aware that they have imminent spirit. So the thing is, it's possible to conceive for them, while they're defenseless, that is, when they're fairly young, that imminent spirit doesn't exist. But instead of imminent spirit, there is something else. And this something else uh, is specially built for them on earth, and is called the church. Now, church, as you know, means assembly. And this assembly of individuals is for the many who feel not strong enough to stand alone. When they go into this church, they participate and therefore declare themselves a part in the ceremony. They are apart from the people who don't go in, but they are a part of the people who do go in. Now this participation implies lack of unity in the people who go in. Uh, these buildings were set up by ruling types who are aware of imminent spirit, that is, will in themselves, individual will initiative, in order to subject people to their will. Any kind of system of ideas that produces a static situation called the state 
is good enough to cause the knee benders, which is the meaning of people, the hedonistic form, to accept the orders from this self-found king. Now, the prophets come along, I'm going to put the prophets upside down. The prophets say to the kings, it is true that there is an imminent spirit in you, but there is also one in me. And there's one in all those people too, if they know that. And I intend to tell them, because this imminent spirit is essentially creative, and you as kings, as setters up of static systems, are opposing yourself to the essential creativity of spirit. So the prophets then declare that spirit is creative, that kings are trying to stop its creativity, and then the kings get hold of the prophets and cut their heads off. And the best prophets don't mind, because if they can get their heads cut off, they're doing very, very well. And the worst thing that can happen used to, is to be ignored. If you can go and stand in Hyde Park and say things, and be ignored, it means you're not a very good prophet yet. Now, the kings use certain symbols derived from matter to condition the minds of people to accept matter as a genuine. The welfare state is a kind of structure like a church. It's an assembly thing that binds everybody together. And by supplying their belly needs, and a bit of uh, the equivalent of the old Roman circuses in the form of TV, stops the struggle upwards and away from the earth. There are certain people who are themselves materialists, many of whom actually believe there is no eminent spirit, recognize that the individual will in these kings has been the cause of the domination of the many by the few. So they call upon the many to overthrow the few, but they call upon them to overthrow the few in the name of matter. So we find, in effect, that the materialists, Marxists and so on, require people to become aware of themselves as material entities who nevertheless have initiative, but the initiative is only a function of the matter. They then require the many to rise up and overthrow the one and promise them that there will be a stateless commune later on. Now, we've said that the word state means a static something. A state is a static attitude complex substantiated on earth. These men and come along and begin to apologize in the name of matter for their theories and then require the overthrow of kings who are at least acting by will and admitting it. These men are really trying to set themselves up in place of those kings and they have sufficient awareness of the stupidity of masses of people and inertia to make it possible for them to believe that they are the kings of the next period. And when they talk about a stateless commune, they're talking about a non-static relation between beings at some time in the future. Now they have borrowed this concept of the stateless commune from Christianity. And at the same time, they're anti-Christians. The stateless commune was actually practiced by the early Christians and became a great thorn in the sides of kings, and also in the sides of underlings of kings, because 
these stateless communal Christians actually didn't obey orders very well and then the officials who had to keep them in order didn't keep them in order and then the kings came along and shouted at the officials. So the officials wanted to remove both the commune and the statelessness of it. And it is at this point that we get the monarch Constantine, the biggest convict for convenience that we know of historically, comes over and embraces literally the Christian faith in order to produce a state again. Now, inside every one of us, we have an imminent spirit. But that imminent spirit is veiled by the inertia of matter. And that matter has been precipitated by a one-time favourite son of God, called Lucifer. Now, God is omnipotent, and therefore raises a problem for some theologians as to why he has not already eliminated the devil. Already would suggest a temporal concept. He could have eliminated him before he started, in his omniscience. But in actual fact, he allowed him to do this deed called revolting and forming in order that the spirit entering in should clarify itself in going through the resistance of matter and at each level of its penetration of matter should be faced with the necessity for choice. Now imagine the white paper to represent the absolute spirit again and let the absolute spirit just very, very gently make a just slightly less than Aleph impression, which we'll call E for universal. And so very, very gently, they hardly know they exist. It's just like a nice warm bath when you need it. And inside, at the same pressure, a lot of other entities are brought into existence, and these are individuals. Now, all these individuals, just drift about like substances in an amoeba without much effort and they are doing what is called praising the Lord and they praise him continuously and uniformly and therefore they tend to lack stimulation in their frames. These masses of very very gentle angels some of them would be gentle under test and some of them wouldn't. And it could not be determined before the fact of all these freely created gentle angels whether or not they would stand on the test. So we had a nice vast macrocosmos at the E-level function of delighted creatures. They'd never known any pain. And they didn't even know really whether there was a God. They only knew they were very, very comfortable. And in order to create value within this, because these things were all identical, because they hadn't got the super stress upon them, and so they wandered about looking at each other and not knowing whether it was another person or a mirror, in order to introduce differentiating factors into them, there had to be a zone of difficulty precipitated for them. <coughs> that zone of difficulty was precipitated. And then, these spirits, or angels, were forced through the zone 
of disappointment. And in going through it, all that happened to them was, and is still happening, all that happened to them was that they were faced at each point with the necessity for choice. They could say, now I know myself and I really believe there is an infinite and that there was a macrocosmos which is very, very charming and I didn't appreciate it because I'd never had it so good as it should have been better. Now, this process of forcing intelligences through matter is what we call the evolutionary process and that science calls the evolutionary process when it takes half of that V half going out and considers the forces coming out. But there can be no evolution without previous involution. And nothing goes up except that which came down. Many of these angels, when they are forced through difficulties, don't like it. And they try to move backwards all the time away from the difficulties and remain, if possible, in that soft hedonistic angel land. But those who do so are not the best and they do not constitute the greatest joy for the generating father spirit. Now Christ says this clearly enough in the parable of the prodigal. The stone rejected by the builders is this precipitated material world made by Lucifer and these gentle folk here who just drift around enjoying themselves, don't like that stone. <coughs> they don't like anything to do with pain, and they don't want to improve. Consequently, they try to keep as far away from the material world as possible. Now, they're very peculiar because they are not men who are introverting onto the imminent spirit. Let's draw a larger version of an angel. That angel is a certain kind of substance and it has an imminent spirit in it but it is not driving towards that imminent spirit but the imminent spirit is flowing out and moving it about and it is allowing that imminent spirit to move it and it therefore never knows unpleasantness. So it does not know that it has inside it the possibility of individual initiative. It has always obeyed and therefore, it does not know that it is obeying. It's simply following its inclination. Now, there's a considerable difference between having a child that always obeys because it was born at a very low level and hasn't got the power to resist, and another child who disagrees with you until it finds its centre and then actively cooperates with you. You find this in the parable of the two sons, of whom the Lord says to one of them, go in the vineyard and do a bit of work, and he says, I am not going, and runs away. And when he gets outside, after a bit he thinks, I'll go and do a bit of work in the vineyard. So he does it. But the other son, when the father said, go and work in the vineyard, he said, yes, father, better I will do your will, and went out and didn't. And Christ says, which of these two sons is the better? And the answer is, the one that refused and then did it. Now, this refusal is the same thing as spirit going into the substantial inertia body and then coming out again and consciously doing the will of the adversary. 
Whereas the other one is outside here and God says, go into that vineyard, that is into that substantial garden and get digging. And he says, yes, Father, I will. And it goes like this. The one was about and dodges it. Now, the one that dodges it in that manner apparently has got away with it for the time being. But we're talking about profit. When this one who refused goes in and then finally comes out, he has power to do the will of the Father reflexively and self-consciously, and the other one is a dodger. Now, when the macrocosmos is expanding, it draws in energy from outside. And when these dodgers who don't know their way about occasionally come dodging near the macrocosmic wall, quite suddenly, they can be whipped in by a reflexive fellow and their education begins. This has happened in many fairy stories where gentlemen have gone off, usually three sons of it, to do something daring, and they go down the village street and finish up in a pub by the sound of the music. The important thing to realise is that our body and its inertia constitute our best friend, providing we work to overcome it. But if we don't, they are the worst enemy. Outside us, we have men making propaganda, acting contingently upon us, and declaring that we, and they mean our body, belong to an organization, trade union, static church, or whatever it is, and that they are requiring us to go into that thing and join at the body level. And the state organizes itself a church and gets people to belong to it because when it gets people to belong it can manipulate them. Remember the church is the left arm of the state, I'm talking about the established church, and the army is the right arm of the state. We get them to go in and belong and then we get them to go on a routine process or ritual and we never explain to them the meaning of the ritual. This is very important. If you ever explain the meaning of the ritual and say, if you go through the stations of the cross or something and think about its psychological significance, you will be driven inevitably to realize that there is imminent spirit in you and that you yourself constitute, as to your body, a vehicle or temple of the living God. Living God means creative God. If you become absorbed in the ritual as such, gradually you will become a structure of conditioned reflexes like the jellyfish was telling and you will go on repeating and repeating and repeating and you will hear voices saying that you are doing very well and in fact you will be completely tied up and circumscribed by the ritual. We live in a world with our feet on mass inertia. If we had no body at all, no mass inertia, we couldn't be held into it. We couldn't be driven through resistances to come out on the other side and find our initiative. And therefore our body is our greatest friend. Opposition is true friendship and our best friend is our inertia, if we fight it. But there are other people outside us and they are trying to force us into identification with the body and with matter generally. 
we've seen that there are some who actually believe, or teaching, <coughs> that the body or matter is all there is. They can't account for the fact that they walk about. We've seen that some others who don't believe it but are terrified accept the words of ruling types, and we've seen that certain ruling types misrepresent the situation for the sake of the feeling of power. We have seen that prophets exist who indicate this imminent spirit, and then that the kings, if they find out about them, tend to remove their heads. Inside every man, there is a microcosm with a one-for-one -one correspondence with the elements in the macrocosm. That means in every human individual, there is an ignorant being, a being that is actually materialistic and so stupid, a subent in you who is really materialistic, doesn't believe there is an imminent spirit, everybody's got one of these, doesn't believe that there is transcendent spirit, and only believes what can hit against it. That's one subent. Also, there's another one, so terrified that it will bend the knee to any kind of force whatever. And that one will never say what it really believes if the stick is held over its head when it is required to state its belief. And inside every individual also there is a dictator. That is a, a subent complex that likes nothing better than to see other people cower down and do what they're told. And when it sees the stupid, the merely stupid, it would lock them up. But all those that cow down and help to subserve this rulership concept, according to their degree of efficiency in helping it, constitute a court or running round establishment process for the king. This is the core term of a king. There is also a prophet in us that tells us that we have inside ourselves imminent spirit, that imminent spirit is creative, that we only know that it exists when we are overcoming inertia, when we are momently, I mean momently, from moment to moment, actually getting closer to grips with creative energy in ourselves, and that this prophet, when it speaks, will be attacked by the dictator subent within, and that dictator subent will cut off the head of the prophet. Now the head symbolizes the intellectual side of the prophet, and like John the Baptist's head was cut off. There is a force in you, resident in a certain part of your body, and that force makes chemicals in that part of the body and releases them into the blood system, and they then go and paralyze those parts of the mind that utter logical statements like if one man has a hole in him because of the nature of the dynamism of forces that every man has. Now, down in the forest, something scary, uh, down in the belly there was uh, a dragon. From the navel to the diaphragm, when you get angry, you will feel certain energy move. If you learn to watch yourself, you will find that your body is zoned, and that in each part of the body there is a definite type of energy activity. There is a place in the body where anger starts, where if somebody thwarts your will in public, 
you appear a little gathering together and a determination to smash him on what is called principle. Now, this thing is the red dragon of the revelation. When we look at the symbol of the planet Mars, we see the symbol of circumscription and an arrow flying from its center. And this energy flying from the center cannot occur unless there has been a pressure put on it. So there must be a Saturnine dominion before there can be a martial flash. If any person attacks you from outside and threatens to diminish your empire, in the fact of pressing you with his concept, he will force in the conceptual energy, which we have termed the king cement or dictator cement, and compress it, and you will then feel hot in a certain part of your body. If you get pressed very hard, that heat will become so violent that it will express itself in rude words or even in physical blows. We have to realize that man as a microcosm contains cements within himself, one for one in correspondence with all the principles of the macrocosmos. Now, St. Paul said we fight against principalities and powers and corruption in high places. He was not referring to the external material government in any given state. Although the members of those governments have these principles and power centers in them. He was referring to their very centers in our own organisms. Imagine that any finite being is a center of forces which traverse him, and those forces, wherever they intersect, set up a little vortical spin, and these little vortical spins are subends. They have characters according to the nature of the intersecting forces. So, as to our gross physical body, we may look like a unity, but at another level, to an infrared camera, we are surrounded with a, a heat aura. To another camera, we would be seen to be traversed by all sorts of forces. And wherever these forces intersect, there is always generated a little wheel, and inside the being, constituting therefore a seven. And it is characterized by the nature of the intersecting forces. Now, as all the motions in infinity go to infinity, it means that no matter where you circumscribe the zone, there are always the forces of the absolute, so and therefore there are exactly the same subends in every being. The only difference then between one being and another is the contingent relation difficulties through which it has been pushed which has sharpened its awareness of itself. So some people know more about themselves than other people because they've been in more stressed situations. I know quite a few people who don't think they're bad-tempered because they've never been thwarted. Remember I mentioned a few weeks ago that Herbert Spencer who boasted that he hadn't got a wrinkle for it because he was never puzzled, made the statement in a book of his that men of his day were wasting money 
trying to do stupid things with a new gadget called an electric motor, which states, through sheer lack of knowledge of fundamental principles, thought could replace steam power. A man who could make a remark like that is so fatuously self-conceived that we can only consider him to be today suffering from a dreadful mass inertia. And his mind has been traversed by the current ideas of his time, the zeitgeist of his day, was doing his thinking for him. And whatever occurred in his mind, and his mind was his mind because he was the child of his parents, and they of their parents, and through their environment, and you are always born of certain parents in a certain environment, the peculiar character of the organism there, called Herbert Spencer, through which these forces travelled and intersected, was a filter which gave a peculiar bias to the statements made, and the bias was determined by the zeitgeist, that is, by the contemporary mode of thought, like a wallpaper. Now this tells us what it means to wake up. That W is two Vs, and those Vs mean values, volitions, anti-inertias. This R means energy, again, aspiration, rising up. K means the consciousness of an obstacle. Here at the end is the universal, the field. So to wake is actually to get your volitional urge, See the inherent duality in it, aspire to do something, put yourself into a situation where there will be opposition, throw yourself at the wall, and then you will become aware of the field energies. There is no other method of waking up other than putting yourself into a resistant situation. This is why it is quite a waste of time to think that you can do armchair yoga in perfect comfort. If you support your body in the spine, in a nice armchair, and get your temperature comfortable, and then try to meditate on the absolute, you will go to sleep. If you sit on the appropriate chair that offers you no support, so you have to support yourself, and sit with your spine long, and make sure that you keep it long, in the act of keeping it long, you are guaranteeing that you are being awake. If it starts to bend and fall down, it means you were not awake. This is why in yoga theory, there is only one rule about posture, and that is that the spine must be kept straight. Kept. Not put on a, a special couch shaped in the same way as the spine, so that you sit in. You must keep it that way. Every time you allow yourself to get a bend in your spine and start slumping, you are falling asleep. The fact that you allow it means that you've already started to fall asleep. But when it has occurred, owing to the fact that the vertebrae in the spine are like little blocks of bone with cushions between them, and there are all sorts of connections coming to at certain points, if you allow that thing to bend, the spinal vertebrae begin to exert pressures 
on each other. In old people, you'd actually find that the cartilage here, between this cushiony stuff, gets worn very, very thin when the spinal posture is bent. And it can then flirt forward and become a slip disc. In which case, whatever was going down the spine has to go like that. And you follow the centre of the disc to go back. Now, all this is a mechanical interference and lowers the vitality, the available spirit, creative energy in you. Now, Christ said that he came, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, in German, the word life means body. And leb, the termination of it, means lib. And leave is love. Now, in English, if you go back into the German roots of English, you will find exactly the same thing. Love, in the termination, is praise. So, if we say loben, it means to praise. Live is body. Leben is to live. Liebe is love. This means that the same constant, LB, is determinant throughout, in praise, in body, in life, in love. Now if we just change the B to a V, which is the rule in changing from German to English, then we have the English word love. And you also have it in the rather old-fashioned expression, I have as leaf, you so and so. It springs into line with this Lima thing. Having a body is the ground, and there's an I in it, that I is the egg in German, it's an egg in it. Having a body is the ground of the possibility of living, praising, and loving. Remove the body absolutely, which is saffening. And immediately the possibility of relation disappears, and life, love, and praise are all relation. So remove relation, and you remove love, life, and praise. You can do the same thing with the English language if you confine yourself to the uh, non-Latin roots, the Anglo-Saxon roots, you'll find you can do the same thing with it. If you go into the Latin, you'll find that the thing changes, because of the psychological bias of those people to M-worship. So you'll find uh, Amor, you see, which is their version of love. But it is a substantial differentiation activity. It is concerned with M. And it is the reverse of their greatest activity, ruling the material situation. What they love is rulership. What they have always loved is rulership of the material situation. So they are beings who encourage inertia because they like ruling. And you can't rule unless you have a situation to rule. And you can't make a situation unless you get somebody to sit. That's the root star, which is the root serpent crucified. There can be no state unless we take the free spirit, S, and crucify it. Now again, this is dialectical because it is the symbol of the crucified Saviour in it. Moses took a tail cross and nailed a serpent to it. 
the continuous motion of that serpent allows us to put N on it. So we write STN. Now that Satan is simply the free spirit crucified in order to move. Remember in the Greek we have a, a terminal S which is free, one time old fashioned serpent on the run, and an initial and medial one which is closed. To begin and to continue is to close the spirit. You begin by making a finite. You continue by repeating the finite. But when you come to the end of the word, you stop writing that closed S when you write this free S. It symbolizes the spirit has got out of that one. And if there's another word ahead, it will be splitting in that one. We have to see here that the dialectical facts of spirit itself are the cause of all these processes. Spirit, that paper, is absolutely non-dual. There would be no value in it whatever unless it introduced it within itself. There is nothing other than it, so it cannot introduce something from outside itself which is alien to pluralize itself. So the only way it can introduce plurality and therefore value is by complicating itself, which is the same thing as folding itself. Flicking, complicating its fold. And it can only fold by actualizing itself. So it takes the R and it applies itself to a resistance and crucifies itself. And for speed at a certain point, they took out this part of the K and wrote it like that, and it became a C. So act signifies the other force hitting against the resistance and thus formulating itself. This is why God is said, theologically, to be pure act. That is to say, there is nothing in him that is static in the sense in which people are taught to believe. There is no entity whatever that is still or static except to another entity so insensitive that it can't see the motion that constitutes it. The Greeks would have put and preferred a hard G for the K there because they were busy at that time forcing themselves through very difficult situations, and they say argo. So you find the argonauts and the other men are concerned with not actuality with a K, but actuality with a hard G. A hard G means that the Greeks drove themselves into the material situation so that they knew all about it. And when they'd driven themselves in that way, then they knew all about the material situation, and then they became highly intellectualized, the next necessary stage in evolution, and at the same time, they propounded a rational, intellective statement about the nature of spirit as a dialectical force. And while they were busy doing that, they neglected the arg level, and at that moment, the Romans, who were fond of M, came in and began to rule the situation. Uh, rather similarly, there are many Greek elements in Spain, but you call the Greek the initiator, and the 
planning the final term of the same process. That would be more like it. This idea of calling Greek means that they take the gross material and break it down. Now, the men who did this in the first place, with the greatest force, are the Achaeans. And those are the axemen of the old days, who used to fight with battle axes, with tremendous force. And they're the men that overthrew Troy. Now, Troy is like the M closed system in Asia that we mentioned earlier. Troy is the affirmation of law. And Troy was a walled city and governed by a man called Priam, which shows you that that man was a firearm man, substantiated, with a gentleman called Parini with him. Now, any closed system cannot afford to introduce into itself force from outside. Because if it does, the force necessarily changes the situation. But Paris went out and captured a lady called <coughs> Helen. And Helen means the halo, you see, as opposed to the pyratio. The halo means power law, and the len is the same as lin and lang in Lancashire. It means weave, the only name of flax. Helen means power weaving. Paris, to increase his power, introduced some power from outside. Then all the other powers were determined to get in. Now, when you take the L, which means unity, unity principle, and put it into a closed system, it turned into R's. And so they made for themselves a wooden horse and left it outside, and the Trojans then took it inside, and it then blew the place to bits. Now, every historical situation, and Troy was a historical situation, is simply a moment of development of the involving spirit and the evolving spirit in their interrelations. The introduction of Helen by Paris about the end of Troy, just in the same way as the introduction into a man's mind of a prophetic statement that there is imminent spirit inside, will profoundly upset the already conceptualized mind and force it to make a choice. When you hear that there is imminent spirit, you must either say, I like the idea, and start throwing out concepts that are against it. Or you must close yourself and say, I don't like the idea, because it disturbs my own functions. That is the choice before everybody. Owing to the fact that a definite amount of matter was precipitated, Time is fine. So, after a certain number of rotations there, there will be a release of energies. All those beings who choose for substance and merely contingent relations, which are external, will be on that earth when it incandesces. And it must incandesce because it is contracting. That means to say that the end of the earth will be by fire, by incandescence. Those beings identified with it are going to feel rather bad at the time it goes off. Like the little boy that uh, bit on a cracker and blew up in his mouth. If you're fond of it and didn't know it exploded, you're bound to cry a bit. 
And if you've already gained non-identification with it, and you have identified with your imminent spirit, which you know is essentially creative, you will not bother about the explosion of any particular planet in infinite space. Well, that is the choice before us. to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes. <laughs>